This is Unpacking Design, a podcast to help designers of all kinds better themselves in career, business, and life. Join me, Michael Valley, and my co-host, Tim Ong, as we unpack the problems designers face every day. Welcome to Season 2 of Unpacking Design, Life Lessons to My Younger Self. Each episode this season is a raw and unfiltered dive into what we wish we knew years ago. Since we can't turn back the clocks for ourselves, we hope that these masterclass discussions will help you on your own journey. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unpacking Design. This is the 10th episode in a 12-part series that Mike and I are calling Life Lessons to My Younger Self, where Mike and I will each be sharing six lessons that we've learned in our lives and careers so far. In a previous lesson, Mike talked about becoming the hero of your own story. Make sure you check out all the previous lessons in this series to get the most out of it. Today, I'll be talking about my advice to my younger self, which is don't ask for permission, ask for guidance. The first lesson in this series, in this particular one, is to avoid the binary way of working that we've been taught throughout our lives. This is one that I find to be important because it actually perpetuates through school and into the profession. I'll talk about it a little bit more, but let's start from the early part of it. From the moment that we entered school as a child, we were taught methods of thinking and working that was a reflection of the industrial age combined with the connection to the infinite world of information through technology. Every class we were in, we were taught how to repeat tasks and work towards a known answer. If we didn't know, we could simply search for the answer online. It leads to habits that we developed over a long period of time, which makes them very hard to identify and break. When I was entering the professional world of architecture, I remember being so silent and just observing the people around me. It was as if I couldn't afford to make a mistake. Every task that was given to me was new, and I didn't know where to start. I remember, started, I remember staring at this set of blueprints that were handed to me with red lines on them and some notes for where to find a BIM model file. It was the first time I ever opened a model in a professional environment, and it was the first time that I had to correct red lines. I was so afraid of making a mistake that I was paralyzed and didn't know what to do. And after a moment, I did what most people would do. I turned to the person next to me and I asked a question. Now, if you're listening to me talk about this, what kind of question would you ask in a situation like this? Some people might ask, hey, is it okay if I make the updates like this? Other people like me might ask, hey, can you show me how we typically make these kinds of updates at the office? There's a big difference between the two types of questions here. And if you couldn't catch it, we'll jump into what the differences were. In the first one, where you're asking, hey, is it okay if I make updates like this? You're asking for a simple yes or no response. And what happens with a question like that is that the responses you get will only be a short response that don't actually teach you something. It's just giving you permission to say that you can do it that way, it's going to work. So you never get the depth of knowledge that you should be learning in that environment. The second type of question where you ask, hey, can you show me how to do something? The person that you're asking has to help you by showing you the processes that they've learned through time and experience. And when they do that, you typically learn exponentially more. 
I've worked with people in both sides of that equation. And I found out the ones who typically ask for permission to make an update will ask the same question over and over again throughout a project before they're actually able to learn and apply the answer to all the projects. People who ask for someone to show them how to do something generally learn and they apply the results from that moment onward. They're the people that come up to me and they ask me a question. They ask me if I can show them how to do something. And when I'm done, I generally don't hear that question from them ever again. In fact, they start to apply it so much that they come up with even better questions about how to do something. And at some point, they start to question the process itself and improve upon it. So the difference here is time. How long does it actually take for you to get the desired result that you are looking for and more? How long does it take for you to be independent and able to work confidently on your own? And the reason why I wanted to start here is because if we carry those same ideas from school, where we're always asking for permission, from asking if you could use the bathroom in elementary school to asking if it's okay to do something in a specific way or trying to get to a very specific answer in a math class, there's always this binary way of working. Can I do this? Is this the answer? And once you enter the profession, it also perpetuates because we still work in an industrial age style. You wake up early, you give the best moments of your life to your employer, and from nine to five, you're repeating tasks that you're doing the same every single day. Your design process is the same. Your meetings are the same. Client meetings are the same. Everything is the cycle that you just repeat. And until you can actually understand what you're doing and break that cycle, you're not truly learning. So when I think about this idea of avoiding the binary way of working, it all starts with, with identifying how do you as a person generally ask a question and how do you then grow to being able to ask more thoughtful and insightful questions? So Mike, I want to know from your perspective, when you started working and when you entered the profession, what kind of questions were you asking and what was it like to actually learn the processes that you never knew before in a professional environment? Yeah, I really like this topic today, Tim, because I think that it's a complicated one, but it's one that sort of like I think of it akin to being kind of trapped in the matrix. And this is a very nerdy reference, but it feels like there's this code that's kind of like behind our eyes and shading us from just understanding the world as something other than what is presented to us literally in front of our eyes. And I think that you and I have started to see these patterns, started to see the 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 tricks and the <laughs> the and the things that are uh, almost um, covering our eyes from being able to make better decisions or ask better questions and I, that's why I like kind of breaking down this in general. I would take what you asked though from two different vantage points. I think one thing that happens that is one side of the coin, I guess I should say, for me when I was younger is I was very much an introverted kid. I'm still an introverted person in general and get my energy from being 
alone a lot of the time and introverted in general. But I think that I was always that sort of straight-laced uh, kid that did everything that he was generally told. I was not a rebellious kid. I I kind of you know stood in line and did whatever I needed to to conform, um, which you know has its benefits and its uh, and its cons. Let's say um, it's one benefit that I think kind of shines above them all is that when you're winning or gamifying your life in that system, sometimes you win in ways that others don't, or at least perceptually you do. So then you just keep working at, at, at that kind of um, path. So as an example, I would ask questions like, uh, you know, should I do this? Can I do this? Is it okay if I do this? Uh, like you said, with your first example, where I was that person, I was, you know, the person who was asking for permission not really going my own way or trying to understand really what was at the heart of what I was trying to build for myself, do for myself. I think your example of processes in an office is really a good one because I have had people since I've moved up in the ranks and have more experience. I've had people ask me both types of questions now, and I can start to see those personalities a little bit better because the people who tend to ask the first kind of question where it's a permission question tend to be like how I was, where I was just kind of, you know, it's not like acting like a a drone, but it's more just sort of conforming to that style that society has kind of given us. Versus the other people who, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if you're going to go into this, actually, if you're going to go into introvert versus extrovert, but I I do feel like there is something about being extroverted that a lot of extroverts I know don't ask the first question. It's not inherently the the thing that they ask. They just do. (laughs) And they just, they will just kind of ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Um, So I guess in, in the first sense, I, I, I feel like the a lot of my life has been about asking those first kind of questions. As I get older, I care a little bit less about whether or not I conform with the system and am looking for better ways of doing something. Um, I'll give you a really good example. So I just started at the uh, my new office and I've been at that job for about, uh, as of this recording, I've been there for about a month and a half, two months. And it's going great. I like the work I'm doing but I have to unlearn some of the strategies and tactics that I had at the old office and kind of learn new ones based on the style or the methodologies that are practiced at this other office. The difference is is that if I was starting earlier in my career, I probably would have been like, is this okay? Is that okay? Am I doing this right? You know, but I found myself asking the second kind of question to understand why are they making this decision versus that decision? And it's less about understanding the actual reason, but more about, for me, understanding the reason. Let me clarify. It's less about understanding the answer they're about to give and more about their thought process behind why they're giving me that answer. So the example I could give you is I have been taught for the, the probably 
two major jobs and even the uh, summer internships that I had. Uh, and you might do this a different way, Tim, but I'm just going to explain this. So on a sheet of drawings, let's say it's a 30 inch by 42 inch set of drawings on an architectural set of drawings. I have always been taught that because the sheet number is formatted and labeled in the bottom right corner, that you start a set of drawings also from that bottom right corner and you move up and you move to the left or you move left and then you move up. It doesn't matter, but you always start in the bottom right because if you're flipping through a hundred different major, like big size drawings, you want to immediately go to the sheet number that you're trying to get to. And you want to see the first drawing should be the most important drawing on that set. Now there's probably other ways to do this, but for whatever reason, the first two major firms that I worked at did it that way. And then when I moved to this next firm, they did it from literally the complete opposite side and corner of the sheet. And I asked why I'm like, okay, I, I, I gave you my reason. And I worked this through with some of the uh, people who worked there. Um, I was just curious, like, why would you do this another way? Um, it's not that I thought that it was necessarily wrong at first. I just wanted to understand. And I, they explained that, how do you read a piece of paper? How do you read um, in general? You know, in the Western Hemisphere, we we tend to, uh, or in America, we read from left to right, from the top to bottom. So their thought process in that firm is that you should have a set of drawings the same way. I was taught never to do that because when you have about a hundred drawings in a set of drawings, sometimes things get clipped off on the left side of the page and it gets difficult to open. You have to like literally open up this giant sheet set and it becomes difficult to get to the main drawing first. Now, it made sense to me to do it the first way that I explained before. And it made sense to me to do it the other way before. It was just interesting to get a sense of what that office protocol was like. And I don't think there's a wrong or a right way. There's pros and cons to either method, but it was just very interesting. And I would never have known that if I was just like, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, is like you said, asking for that yes or no question. I would have never understood that thought process behind what people might perceive as such a simple thing, but because of how systemic that ideology is through all of their sets, it's something that if I didn't ask a more of a how or a why question, I would have never understood it. And it would have made, it would have probably <laughs> made all my sets that I do at that office, like confound people forever. That's a really interesting example because I never thought about it that way, but hearing it from you and, and the way that you're explaining it relates to this bigger idea for me and the reasons why I, I ask more thought-provoking questions like that. It's because I learned early on that there is no right or wrong way. When you actually ask why something's being done, I can guarantee you that the processes going on at all offices started with one person and were built upon by multiple people to the point where the person who originally started it, the owner of the practice, is so far removed that they don't actually know what it looks like anymore. And then the person who's just implementing that process don't ask why, they just do. When you start thinking about what you were talking about, Mike, this idea of how to organize drawings for construction, it's interesting to me in that there is no right or wrong way. You and I can sit down and probably, with a graphic designer, come up with a way better way of organizing and labeling drawings. 
There shouldn't be an A1. There should just be one, two, three. There should be a certain way of organizing it from bottom right to top left or whatever it is. But everyone's going to be different. And it's important that it's a representation of the, of the practice of the firm. So if you ever own a business, however you come up with your standard operating procedures, it's a reflection of your firm and people will notice it. The more time you put into developing a really good method of working, the better it'll be. But to get it there, you also need to be open to having people ask you those hard questions because I've run into people where I'll ask those hard questions. And the people who I ask those questions to are generally people who will ask questions like, is it okay if, and they get so far in their career that when someone asks them the harder question, like, why do we do it this way? Their responses are so visceral and they get very angry about being asked it in the first place, as if you were supposed to know why we did it already. And so those types of people are the people you don't want to become. You want to be able to try and explain all of the the processes that you've been developing through your life and your career to someone, because by answering their questions, you actually start to get a better understanding of how you can improve upon the thing that they're asking about. I've, I've been able to ask people from both sides of it. The people who come back, come back and yell at me about, well, why are you asking so many questions about this? And the other side of it, where actually the partners that I ask the questions to, they generally don't have that kind of a response. Usually they dive deep and they say, you know, you have a great point. Why don't we change it? And then they start asking what types of changes would I recommend? And that's where it starts to change the discussion and the dynamic, because now you're not just an active listener. You're also becoming a teacher in some way. So I want to transition it now because it, it, what you were talking about leads to the next lesson here, which is to learn to ask insightful questions. That's exactly what you are talking about, Mike, like transitioning from asking the yes, no, and questions to asking the questions that dive deeper. At every stage of your professional career, there's always something that you know very little about and you're going to need to learn. You might also have a role where you interface with clients on a regular basis. During the moments where you need to gain knowledge and information, it's critical to learn how to ask insightful questions. Different types of questions actually lead to differences in how you're perceived by others, how people respond, and the clarity of the information that's received. For example, If you ask a question that's completely out of context and they have no relationship to the discussion or the things you're working on, it'll probably lead to the perception that you aren't listening, you don't care about the project, or you don't have enough experience in that particular area. There's a lot of examples I'm sure everyone's thinking about. Like the person who shows up to a meeting to talk about construction, and instead of asking a question about what's happening... They ask a question about design and you're like, why are we talking about design? We're already building this thing. So the second part of it is, is if you ask questions that take into consideration the experience of the person that you're asking, the context of what you're seeking information about, and it avoids the yes or no responses, it generally leads to the perception that you're engaged and you're interested. These types of questions usually start with why or how. And even statements like, can you tell me more about something? Because now you're diving deeper with someone and you're getting them to open up and share something that 
you would have never known about. And that's exactly what Mike was talking about. But the differences between asking the yes or no question versus diving deeper and asking about a process or asking about why something has been done and how we can improve on it. One of the best tricks that I've learned for asking insightful questions is actually to start with an open question. You follow up with some context to guide the person towards what you're thinking about and why you even asked it. Then you ask that same question again. You listen to the answer, and then you include what was said in any follow-up questions you have. It shows that you're actively listening, but it also allows you to get the answers that you were looking for. You eventually will find your way of guiding discussions through your questions and active listening skills, which will allow you to elevate in your career, your knowledge, and your skills. And this is something that I've been trying to learn how to do better and better and better. I don't think you can ever perfect a method of doing it, but just by listening and asking those thought-provoking questions, I've been able to learn so much about life, about career, about the person I'm with, about the people that I hang out with. And all of that is coming together in such an interesting way because I'm actually able to apply everything I'm learning to my life and let go of the ones that I don't want to apply. So in terms of asking insightful questions, I know, Mike, that you and I, having been on Clubhouse a lot, having been podcasting together for a while, and just generally having mastermind sessions with each other, we've been asking a lot of questions that dive deeper into specific topics. What are some tips that you have from your personal experience on how to ask an insightful question so that you can gain the most knowledge for whatever it is that you're trying to learn more about. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great sort of mini lesson topic to, to dive into a little bit more. And I, the one thing that I think you touched on a, a little bit here so far that's just kind of strikes me is something that helps the power of a question is something I believe I could attribute to Chris Voss. And I think you're, you're kind of hinting at it here, which is to follow up with questions that lead with, I guess the best way to describe it is information that the person just talked to you about or just asked so that you, not only do you appear literally engaged in the question, but that you are actually engaged in the question. Like if you're, if you just told a story about X, Y, or Z, and I say, okay, well, tell me how X, Y, or Z relates to this, or, you know, how do you feel that X, Y, or Z relates to that? I feel that the, there's a power in that, that I didn't, um, I didn't recognize as, as being something worthwhile until we started having these conversations on clubhouse and trying to better our speaking abilities. Right. I think I took it for granted that I was, and I still do this to a, a certain degree. I am not very good yet at making it clear that I was listening to somebody talk about something. I don't have a good way of following up yet of how to sort of actively engage with what was said so that I make the other person feel comfortable as though they're, what they were talking about mattered. And I'm still, that's a work in progress for me. 
But I feel like that is one of the things that is very powerful. And I've actually experienced you do this, Tim, on Clubhouse and in our conversations more directly, where somebody will ask you a question in one of the rooms that we host or a discussion I overhear you having with somebody else, and you'll sort of flip the switch or you'll flip the stage back onto that person and um, you will include in your question or your your sort of next um, inquiry, you'll include something that was said just then so that it, it, it makes the person feel comfortable, I guess is the best way. So that would be the first thing I would say. Um, in terms of asking insightful questions, I think that the most insightful questions are the ones that are really uncomfortable for most people to answer, honestly. Um, there are questions that I remember in a recent interview for um, something we don't really have to go into, but I basically, I follow a, a games journalist type podcaster and he has a history of, let's say a dramatic history of uh, maybe ruffling people's feathers and um not necessarily intentionally, but he just has that kind of aura around him, right? And there are certain things that have happened in his past that have been very public that people like me are aware of because I've been following him for long enough. He was recently in an interview where somebody was asking him questions, very poignant questions that I wanted to know the answers to. And the way that he was sort of asked the questions were so concise but they were definitely uncomfortable. Like if I was in his position, I would not have wanted to answer the question directly. And he didn't deflect. He didn't push them off. He actually answered them for what might have been the first time in the entire time I've been following him. And I think it was partially because of the way that the question was asked. It wasn't, it was challenging, but it was not a question that was disrespectful. I think some people are, unable to answer questions because they perceive it going back to my first point or my first tip, you want to respect the other person that you're asking the question of. You're not trying to incite some sort of, you know, sarcastic response where the other person feels like they're being, they have to defend themselves and then they close up. I think it's more about asking a challenging question that is insightful, maybe something that wasn't asked ever that way to them. And coaxes out a response. The other, the other factor there was that the person being interviewed, the person I'm referencing was very comfortable with the interviewer and they've been friends for a long time. So those friendship, that friendship you're able to also, maybe this is the third tip is try to build the relationship with the person that you're trying to ask these questions of, or to like create that rapport, even if you're not like good friends to create this sense of, commonality between the two. So those would be the, the three. One would be, uh, go, I guess going backwards, create a rapport and then um, ask challenging questions and make sure that you're including information that um, is representative of what that person asked maybe beforehand. Yeah. I really like those tips. And, and the biggest thing for me is to find your own way of doing it because you can learn from reading all these books and listening to Mike and I talk about how we ask questions, but the ways that Mike does it and the ways that I do it are going to be way different 
than how you would do it. Once you find a way that you think about conversation and the ways that you come up with questions, you'll start to find how you can mix your own voice into it. For example, I'm generally a very curious person. So when I lead questions, I let people know that I'm curious to know something about them. And then as I get deeper into that conversation, I pick up on little key words that they've used that intrigued me even more. And then I rephrase what they said because I let them know where the question came from. Then I ask them the question. So for example, from everything that Mike was talking about with the podcast that he was listening to and so on and so forth, the question I would ask him, and you don't need to answer this, Mike, it would be something like, Mike, you were talking a lot about how the podcast host was creating this comfort for the other person. What was it that the podcast host was doing, in your opinion, that really made that stage comfortable for the other person? The reason why I asked this question is because I'm trying to learn my own way of creating that comfortable platform for other people that I'm bringing in and interviewing. And I want to make sure that I can have them feel as comfortable so that they can share really deep and insightful information with my audience. So again, Mike, how do you think that that podcast host created the comfort on that stage for the other person? And from that, you're like, oh my God, okay, that question makes so much sense because I gave it some context, but I didn't keep filling up the air. And and that's another important point I wanted to make before we move on to the next mini lesson. The point there is that too many of us in this world love to come to a conclusion or to give a message by talking it through out loud. What I mean by that is you'll be in a conversation where it's very insightful. It's about a specific topic. It's conference style. It's something where someone is getting on stage to ask a question. And when they ask the question, they say something like, hey, I have a question for you about you know this thing, but uh, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I have this question. Then they tell you about the birth of their children. They tell you about hanging out with their mother the last time. They tell you about the last meal that they ate. And then the question that they ask you is about dolphins. And you're like, how does all of this relate? What am I supposed to take out of those stories that you went on for, for the last 10 minutes to help me identify a way of helping someone else? Now, if you're in a general conversation with friends, you can have conversations like that because that's what it's for. It's about switching topics. It's about changing the focus and not diving too deep. But when you're on a stage and you're in this different kind of a place and you get on a stage, the one thing I love to do is to try and be as clear as I can, which means the amount of words you use should be relative to the value you're about to give. And people asking a question can also give value through the question. Like the question that I asked Mike about the podcast host, the moment you start listening to that question, you start to become an active listener. Because now you feel that relationship between you and the people on the stage. And through that simple act, you create interest around a topic and you get people to actually learn something new. Whereas if you join a stage and you pontificate for the next 10 minutes, you lose all interest from everyone in the room. You lose all interest from the person on stage with you and you're forcing their minds 
to have to think about an answer by extrapolating what you couldn't. So if you have clarity of thought and you ask a clear question, you'll get a really good response and you'll build really good rapport. You have anything you want to say about that, Mike, before we move on? Yeah, uh, two two major things kind of came to mind. One, I did want to answer your actual question about the the way that the podcast kind of rolled out because I think it will help people. Two pieces of context that I think help that discussion. One, both members or participants in that conversation are people who, if you can imagine, talk for hours and hours every week. They have podcasts, they stream, they do these things regularly. I wouldn't be surprised if Tim, one of them at least, was talking like 40 hours a week, literally in front of a microphone, and they have just become very good at talking through almost anything. I think the other thing to consider here is the format of the discussion. So, take the difference between a long form podcast conversation and like a clubhouse room, a clubhouse room might be a poignant set of Q and a discussions between people who don't know each other before and have no context. And they're trying to almost build their story in two minutes and then ask you a question. Whereas these two friends were friends and are friends and they built up to the one interviewer brought up the question essentially maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minutes into an hour and a half to two hour long conversation. So it wasn't like they started like, Hey, what happened here? You know, it was more of let's talk about less pressing matters. Let's talk about things that almost to uh, get the juices flowing, to get the conversation flowing, to get that rapport, to build it over time. You can't ask some of the, you can't ask some of the questions that they did uh, without having some additional level of rapport and comfort, even beyond their personal friendship. Like you wouldn't come out of the gate, Tim, as we're, as we're talking and be like, well, why didn't you do this in your life, Mike? You know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that when we talk, it might come up as a hard hitting question later, you know, in our mastermind session or a conversation that we have offline, or even during this conversation we're having now, I might ask you something, but I wouldn't ask you right out of the gate. So I think there is this one sense of timing, one sense of format, and maybe just having, just give it a little bit of room to breathe, right? Like a little bit of extra sense of what you're asking. If it has a lot of gravitas with, that's like a loaded question, you have to be sure that you're asking it with some sense of timing, I think is probably what would help. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point because the idea about asking insightful questions doesn't mean that you go in and you just bombard someone with really deep, thoughtful questions right away, especially if you don't yet have the rapport with them. So to, to develop that rapport and to ask these questions and to lead people on a journey is an art. It's something you don't learn right away. But to learn it, you need to break bad habits you have with asking yes or no questions and getting to a point where the questions you ask are so deep and thoughtful, but they have some context to them to provoke a thought within the person you're asking so that they can now lead a discussion along with you without knowing that you're the one guiding them on this journey. Because most people want to hear themselves talk. A lot of people start building this 
ridiculous level of happiness as they're speaking and speaking and speaking because they feel like they're giving. They feel like they're giving value. So the better your question, the more thoughtful their answers will be and the more guided that discussion will be so that as they're talking, it's not just noise coming out of their mouth. It's actually really in-depth knowledge that's helping everyone else who might be there listening with you. And that's a great point to transition now to the last mini lesson in this particular one about never asking for permission and asking for guidance. The whole purpose of doing it this way, where you start by breaking all your bad habits and building better ones, getting out of the binary way of thinking and learning to ask insightful questions is that it'll hopefully lead you to becoming an independent thinker and designer. As you learn to ask insightful questions, you'll start to notice that your retention, confidence, and independence grows at an accelerated pace. That's retention as in the amount of knowledge that you now have, not retention in terms of an audience, although that could happen too. Eventually, you'll catch up to the levels of the people that you were asking, and you'll have to find other people that can help you continue to grow. Or you'll actually realize that you've reached a point where you're able to take on tasks and discussions with clients without the need for anyone else from your office to be involved. And at that point, you've reached a point of independence. That's where Mike and I currently are in our journeys in the profession, where we've asked so many questions, we've grown into so many roles, we've had so many responsibilities that we now have a collective knowledge of all the things that's involved with running a practice. There are areas that we're better at than others, but it's because the areas we were most interested in were the areas that we asked the most thoughtful and insightful questions about and grew to a point where we are now, where Mike is leading projects, I'm leading projects, we're working directly with clients, we don't have a lot of oversight. And that's a place where you can either stay where you are or you can eventually start a practice of your own, whether it's a graphic design business, an industrial design business, anything that you want, this is the place where you can be. Because now you've learned how to guide conversations and how to lead them with all the people that matter, the clients who's going to pay you, your team. And you're also able to guide others and answer those questions at a higher level or extrapolate more from someone who asks you the binary questions. What I mean by that is you'll eventually be at this point where someone asks you, can I do this? And then instead of giving them an answer, you'll ask them a question back. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And when they tell you that, then you ask them, well, why do you want to do it the way that you're planning to do to do it? They'll tell you that. And you can tell them, would you like me to show you how I would do it? And then from that simple interaction, you've guided them beyond the yes or no, and you're now teaching them how to do something totally new that they never expected. And that's how you can start guiding the next profession of designers. So for me, when I think about all of these lessons, becoming an independent designer is a really important aspect that hopefully results from all of it. For me, I think about the people that are guiding others. I think about the people who are making decisions. And I think about the people who keep the firm going. Those people are those independent designers. They're the ones that you think of as being the most helpful, 
being the most skillful and being the most knowledgeable. They're the people that you eventually become. It's not a matter of how, it's a matter of when. If you continue to ask the binary questions and you continue to ask unthoughtful questions, you end up taking a longer time to get there. If you start to focus in and be a little more critical, you start to get to that point a lot faster because people recognize that you're trying to learn, but you're also trying to make a difference. And when they realize that, then hopefully they'll be there to guide you. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that before I move into the last point and close this out here, Mike. Yeah, I think it it kind of comes back to, for me, building confidence by being curious, if that makes sense. So rather than accepting things at face value, the quote that uh, actually uh one of my friends and mentors kept like literally on his uh, computer screen for several years is a uh, quote that I want to share that I think is uh, very salient in this point. The most dangerous phrase in the language is we've always done it this way. And that's by Admiral Grace Hopper. And to me, it's, it's this mentality of we've talked about it and kind of unpacked it before of you don't, I, well, I personally don't want to ever find that I am just doing something because that's how we've always quote unquote done it before. I don't necessarily think that that means I need to question absolutely everything and change it every time. But I think there's something very powerful about understanding the why or the how or the, what ifs behind a method or a practice or a a way of doing something that can help you grow more than just by, okay, you know, I'm accepting everything. And, you know, it's not about stepping in line or being rebellious. It's just about understanding it more and being curious for yourself so that, you know, I think when, Tim, you and I are kind of at this point in our careers where we are leading projects and we're being more independent and we're able to operate autonomously to a degree. Uh, Like aside from running the actual business of the firm, I feel like I could probably just run the projects on my own at this point. And I don't have to run some of the business aspects of the firm because that's what the partners do. And that's just what they're function is in the operation of the practice and that's fine. But I feel like there are certain positions that you grow into or that you become because you have that curiosity to know more than just, okay, this is how we've always done it that way. If you were just going off of a simple checklist or a list of itinerary to accomplish during the course of a project, you wouldn't understand the nuances of why you wouldn't understand the I think of like when a catastrophic problem arises, right? And you have to adapt in the moment to something. Well, if I don't have the answer listed for me already on the practices of how we've always done it, then I won't know how to solve that. And I won't be able to appropriately respond in that moment. And I think by becoming more of an independent thinker, designer, creative, however you want to say it, and asking the more how and why questions, you just become more comfortable with adapting to an ever-changing climate or situation on a project. So that's all I want to say. 
Yeah, that's a it's a really good point. And the, the one thing I was going to say about that is ultimately becoming an independent person at a practice and whether it's your own or if it's someone that you're working for is that you get the autonomy of working, but you also develop this rapport where people can rely on you and depend on you. And that's something I never really thought about until recently I started noticing that when others are trying to lead a project who shouldn't be in the role of leadership, and I'll just put it that way and put it bluntly, is that I've generally been the one that people will call when a project is, is going under. And I never thought that I would be that person where people can rely on me, where people can pass something to me and simply say, hey, can you save the project? That's something that to me is a powerful moment, but it's also a moment where I had to be clear and say, I'm not going to be the project saver. What we need to do is to actually figure out why it happened so we can stop it from happening again. Why is it that we're at this point? And that's where the, the questions start up, right? Because now you're in this moment where you're like, okay, I'm seeing a habit as a firm and this habit is perpetuating time and time again. Why is it happening and how do we stop it? And I remember asking that question to the owner of the practice who was passing a project to me that we all knew was failing. And the moment that I asked the question, this is something that honestly, I'm seeing a lot more because the questions are getting a lot more structured in this way, where I asked the question and the reaction is a person taking a step back, no matter what role they're in and saying, wow, I never thought about the answer to that. And we sat there and tried to figure it out. And I knew that there wasn't an answer. And if there was, the person was being politically safe by not saying what the answer was. So I said the answer out loud. And it was due to a set of people who are generally put in a position to do something specific for every single project. So the problem starts with those people. And then when I said it out loud and I put the spotlight on it, there was no way of hiding, right? There's this saying that I keep hearing now, Chris Doe says it and others are starting to say it, that when you shine a light on cockroaches, they scatter. I'm not saying that the people I'm talking about are cockroaches or anything like that. It's more that if the problem is the cockroach and you keep on putting it in the, in the shadows, you never actually figure out why something doesn't work. And that's the whole point of learning to not ask for permission, but to ask for guidance. Because all the questions I asked to the, the owner of the firm was asking for that person to guide me, to tell me from their perspective what the issue was and how they proposed to solve it. And when you start putting people in that position who should be in that position, you start to find that not many people do. You find if there's a Gary V, you find if there's a Chris Doe, you find that if there's someone with clout that people are afraid of asking the deeper questions because they're afraid of shining a light on something that they never really thought about doing. And those people end up in a position where they're waiting for someone to just ask them that question because they want to be challenged. And so that's the, the beauty of learning to be independent. To get there, to summarize this whole lesson here for everyone, this lesson to my younger self of never asking for permission and asking for guidance, I would say, 
let go of all the bad habits that you've developed in school and in life. Learn to ask insightful questions and eventually become an independent designer. When you do, make sure you give back by guiding others. So make sure you guys join us in the next episode where Mike is going to be talking about his next lesson to his younger self. Empathy can be your superpower. Until then, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Make sure you check out all the other ones and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Design. Check us out anytime at unpackingdesign.com. And you can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Please remember to leave a review and share this podcast with someone you know. Mm-hmm.